Brought to you by North Memorial Health, where customers are treated like family. That means a big smile when you walk in the door and making sure your visit is as pleasant as possible. It's just like your family treats you. Find your healthy family at northmemorial.com slash family. Welcome to a new episode of the Access Vikings podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer, and I'll be joined by two new guests today as we continue our draft week episodes. This one will change it up a little bit. We're going to be looking at how this draft is different uh, during a pandemic, obviously. Um, there's a lot different going into the scouting for NFL teams of these players. There are fewer players to choose from. Only about 700 signed up with agents reportedly. That's down about a third, only a third, I should say, of what it normally is. So I invited in Dan Hatman from the Scouting Academy. He was a former NFL scout for three different teams, and he's somebody who's going to be able to share some of the team perspective on what they had to go through this year without a combine, without having those athletic testing drills standardized across pro days, how that affected some of the evaluations, and just getting to know these kids and not being around their campuses and not being allowed on campus. And then also I wanted to talk to Mike Band, who's an NFL next-gen stats analyst. He gives more of the data side on what her team is going to do without some of these standardized numbers that they love. How do they make up for it? Um, And then how does his job as a data analyst projecting how these kids are going to do in the NFL, how is that affected? And he's also a mock drafter, so I wanted to ask him quite a bit about the mock draft process in a year like this. So I hope you guys enjoy it, and thank you for checking out all of our Draft Week content and episodes in the podcast and the Access Vikings feed. They'll continue rolling along Thursday morning with a new episode, and then we'll be back Saturday night to recap what happened in the Vikings draft. Joined now by Dan Hatman of the Scouting Academy. He's been doing that for some time now after working in front offices with the Eagles, Jets, and Giants doing personnel evaluation. Uh, first of all, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted to get your thoughts on just the challenges of this 2021 draft class and and really evaluating it from a team perspective, because um, I think everybody thinks last year with the virtual draft, that was kind of the weird one. And really this year was the year where you didn't have much college football. You had opt outs for the guys who were playing college football, um, the practice access, the medicals, no combine, just all these different things. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on what what is the most critical piece of information you think teams are missing uh, in terms of when they're going into this draft here this week on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night? So the, the nice part is we still had games. So there's still film. There's still things to evaluate. Now, how much we had, uh, certainly with the players that opted out, uh, there's less exposure. Just the leagues didn't play as much like the Big Ten. There's a little less exposure. But generally speaking, we had some football. And we're going to have – some testing, right? It's pro days. It's not as standardized. There's certainly some variables there, but there's still a level of testing. There's a level of verified measurements from arm lengths and hand size and heights and what have you. What gets to be difficult is that success of a player, in my opinion, is driven by environment, right? The chances that a player is what I would call team agnostic, meaning they can go to any of the 32 teams, doesn't matter the scenario, doesn't matter the coach, doesn't matter the location, doesn't matter the scheme, and they're just magically going to produce the same level everywhere is incredibly rare, right? Those are those unicorn players we take at the top of a draft. So like this year, seemingly like a Kyle Pitts from Florida, right? That's a player. I I don't really see scheme fit needed for him. Just use the kit. Let's play football Uh, for many other players. Scheme fit becomes important. I usually use the example of Patrick Mahomes. So I think right now we can all agree. Fantastic player. 
he's taken with the 10th overall selection by Kansas City. They actually trade up with Buffalo to acquire that pick. So let's let's go to a different timeline and say Buffalo decides not to trade the pick. Instead, Buffalo decides to take the player. And Patrick Mahomes has been at Buffalo Bill these last few years. Do you think Patrick Mahomes is the exact same player, the same numbers, the same Super Bowl wins, the same everything in Buffalo than he was in Kansas City when he gets to work with Andy Reid, has the year behind Alex Smith, has Mike Kafka and, and Nagy working with him intimately that first year just on him? Or is it we talk about a different scenario? And I, everybody I've ever asked that question to answers with, well, no, he wouldn't be exactly the same, right? That environment molded him in ways. Okay, then that if that works for him, let's extrapolate that. That works for everybody. Every player coming in, regardless of their ability, is impacted by environment. You as a team have less touch points this year on the player and what makes them tick, what it takes to drive them, because you didn't have people on campus from July, August, all the way through November. You didn't have these opportunities like a combine. You didn't have private workouts. You don't have your 30 visits. There are some touch points, but instead of having 10, 12 touch points with a player, you might only be at four or five. So are you getting the same information out of 40% of a usual year are you going to have the same accuracy on who they are and whether or not it's an actual fit for us when you have 40% less exposure to that one-on-one time? I have a hard time believing we're going to have the same hit rate. And I think that's going to be a really unique opportunity for teams that have scouting staffs with really robust relationships in their area where they got creative this year and how to acquire information because imagine that these college coaches, they were going through all the same stuff with COVID. They didn't have the same schedules. They're trying to figure out how to get their player. They can't get groups of more than 10 or 15 or 20 based on state law. How many people can be in a building? Every school was going through such upheaval, their availability to the NFL was changed. So it wasn't just like, hey, I got a logo on my shirt. They're just going to open the doors and give me what they like. We weren't allowed in on the NFL side. We didn't have the same time. So your ability to cultivate that in years prior to 2020, I think is what's driving your ability to extract value from 2020. And I I do think this is a measure of whether or not you built scouts or whether or not you built information gatherers. And what I mean by that is, did you have a person just going in and getting a box checked because they had a logo on their shirt and the, the, the school would open the doors, they'd let you in, they'd answer your questions. Is it just an information gatherer or did you really hire somebody and train somebody and develop somebody to teach them how to go in and extract, even when the circumstances are not ideal. I think medicals people generally talk about and the combine and everything, but they still got people together. I think it was the top 150 prospects for a com or kind of a medical combine in, in Indianapolis. But um, is it just the practice access? Is it just being around the guys and seeing how a guy works? Like, what do you think is being missed the most? The medical's tough because you're going to have players that fall through the cracks. So you know, we, we take from a 350 player pool and you move it down to 100, there's 200 players we didn't get medical checks on. So somewhere in there, a player that would have been flagged for something, we don't have the opportunity now. We don't know what we miss until we miss it. So that's definitely up there. And then, yes, being able to be the fly on the wall, when these the bigger schools have scouts every day, so there's always somebody there. It's not like in a small school, like, hey, if a scout comes, that might be the news all day long. The scouts are here. The scouts are here. The scouts are here. And you might get the players best because they know they're, you know, you go to some of these big schools, they got scouts every day. It's just standard operating procedure. 
And so to be able to fly on the wall at a place like that, where people may let their guard down a little bit because there's always somebody there, you get to observe things. You get to see them, you know, in that environment. We, we talk about that you know, phrase "fly on the wall." It, it, you know, it's interesting. What would it be like to observe without them knowing we're observing? Now, is that always the case? Certainly not. But there is some of that exposure to be able to observe those kind of things. Um, you know, I know it seems cliche, but like, you know, what does a player do in drills? Are they lagging behind, trying to hide and miss reps? You know, are they really pushing to get out there and get better? Because there's ways for players to kind of avoid coach's eye and like, you know, lollygag around, kind of sneak to the back of the line, get an extra drink or whatever, miss an entire rep. Like, does that really matter to one rep? Well, if he does that every practice, and he does that every practice every week, he does that every week, every year, well, he might have missed 100 reps that somebody else got. Is that huge? Can you not make up for that? No, you can make up for that stuff, but it, you start to learn about, their work habits. And again, when you talk about missing, I've yet to be around the person that says, Oh, we missed because we thought he was a blue chip athlete. He really just wasn't. Yeah. We don't miss on the movement patterns. We miss him a person. We miss on, you know, to use Jerry Angelo's line. I love so much. He talks about there are two types of players in the NFL. You have athletes playing professional football, and then you have professional football players. And you're aspiring in the second group. You're aspiring to someone that, yes, they have the athletic skills, but they are a professional. You know, when we talk about like a Larry Fitzgerald, you know, it's that craftsman mentality, a Richard Sherman, like, you know, it's the mental, the physical, they take care of their body. It's every, they are fully invested in using the limited time on this planet that they have to be an athlete at this level. They use every day of it to be a professional. And then you, we know the stories of the other people that have the athletic ability they don't spend every day doing that. And they might play for a little bit, but they don't play for long. And that reminds me now, I just seeing, I think I saw some comparison today of, of uh, Daniil Hunter and his athletic comps to uh, the pass rusher out of Penn State who had zero sacks and is kind of getting a lot of buzz now. Like, we don't know the guy's character. We don't. We know Daniil Hunter is the kind of guy that's going to put in the work and mold himself and really be committed. Uh, that's what makes him Daniil Hunter. It's not just he's 6'5 and he runs a 4'5". Um, there's so much more to it. And, and I guess that just kind of stuck out to me because you're right. It, it seems that, yeah, you, you know who the guy's athletes are, you know who the athletes are and the superior ones are, because it doesn't matter if that number is going to come out of a pro day or your own testing or a combine, you just need to be able to figure out that person. If we went took, you know, pick, pick 50 to 125, right? So that kind of day two-ish range, early day three, and we went and found all the players that athletically at their position scored like Daniel Hunter did, right? I'm sure we'd find dozens, dozens of guys that were really unique athletes. And then if we looked at their career, that did not translate. It did for him because he wanted it to translate. That doesn't just magically manifest, manifest elsewhere. Yes, all pro athletes are usually blue chip players. Blue chip, I'm sorry, all pro players are usually blue chip athletes. But not every blue chip athlete is an all pro. And that's the, that's the rub in all of this is how do we figure out and project someone who is talk about maybe 20, 21, 22, 23 years old. My goodness, I wasn't evolved and fully developed at that point, you know, and, and yet we're expecting them to be there. Well, of course they're going through things. You know, I use the example of Tyron Matthew has had a great NFL career and has really got his stuff together. He kicked out of LSU for making mistakes, but those mistakes didn't define him. He was able to work through them. He's able to work past them, learn from them. 
well, how many other guys have had just as many mistakes, just as many second chances, just as many opportunities, and it just didn't click. I use Josh Gordon. You know, Josh Gordon has a has a, a concern in his life. He's got demons he needs to battle, and and he and I pray he does, but it hasn't worked out being able to consistently be on an NFL roster. It's not lack of talent. It just he can't get this part of his life cleaned up where tiring did. You know, it's those kind of things that you really have to try to work through. Now, if you're still working for an NFL team at this point, or, or do you do you want a shorter board then? Do you want the thing that the Patriots are kind of known for of like, you know, we just put these 75 guys on here. We trust these guys when there is that kind of lack of information. Do you expect I guess the teams with job security might want to take more chances. But if you don't, your, your board might be a lot shorter this year. No, I do think that that risk aversion has a lot to do with uh, the leeway you might get from ownership um, and the cachet that you've built uh, from that standpoint, certainly. I think ultimately like my philosophy would be, you know, instead of doing a thousand players and trying to cover every touch point um, on the checklist for all a thousand, like at some point we have to do work this like a funnel. You know, we take maybe a thousand to start with, but again, the board's only gonna get to a certain number, 125, 150, whatever you're gonna get to, or maybe less again in this hypothetical. I want to know those 75 to 150 players more intimately than I want to know a thousand players, right? I don't want to go a mile wide and an inch deep. You know, I really want to focus in on that. So I would be trying to build things where instead of a, a CYA mentality of like, well, I have to make sure I've got a thousand players covered so I can say that I did it. We know a thousand guys aren't going to play. We know a thousand guys aren't going to make the combine. They're not going to make roster. We just know that. So where, at what points do you filter and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to move on from this. And maybe I miss, maybe I do filter out somebody that's viable, but in exchange, I've gone so deep on the ones that I think are viable that I change my hit rate. Now, what are your expectations for this draft? Just out of curiosity, because it, no, I'm not playing games is not going to hurt Jamar Chase, for instance, um, but it might hurt some other people. I mean, what are your expectations in terms of what, how much we can predict how the first, second, and you know, obviously the, the longer it goes, the harder it gets to predict, but even just that first round outside, maybe the top 10, how hard is it going to be? It seems like the opt-outs that got advice of where they were projected to go and then chose to sit out that that's going to hold, you know, we're still talking about Penny Sewell and Rashawn Slater and Jamar Chase as top picks and Micah Parsons and what have you. Like they were given information ahead of time. It seems to be, that was credible information because it doesn't seem to be manifesting in any sort of uh, material drop. Um, I think that you're going to have way more volatility in that 50 to 125 in terms of risk aversion. And I think you're going to see teams, like you mentioned, that feel like they've got a real good track record. They've got real good relationship with ownership that they might go ahead and take some more shots because things are going to fall. I think other teams are going to be really risk averse. I think there's going to be a lot of teams that are swinging for doubles, not defenses, and saying, let's just get, you know, usually red is the, the color on a scale that means solid, you know, win with like, I think some teams are going to get red players. Let's just be solid. Make sure our roster is functional. We'll figure it out on the coaching side. This might not be a blue chip year. And then if that happens and players fall, then I think other teams are really going to be in a position to say, you know, let's, let's take some risk. Let's see if we can put some real difference makers in this. And then the quarterback factor in a heavily weighted position with so many names that are going to be moving up 
you know, even we talk about this, this next tier out of the top five, the second round is going to have a whole bunch of trades for, do you like Davis Mills? Do you like Kellen Mond? Do you like Kyle Trask? Like teams are going to go get those guys as well. And so as you do that, as you jump over players to get a quarterback, just to make sure you got one, these teams that don't need a quarterback are going to be catching players that they should, like you're going to get players that are moving into the 12 to 15 range. You're going to be like, wow, really? But the quarterbacks went and that, that flushed things down. Do you think, why is that? Why, why are you expecting a lot of teams to kind of jump for these quarterbacks when there's not really as much information out there about them? I would think that position would be affected more than others because you really want to know who that guy is. I think we all carry a lot of ego sure. you know, in this and our ability to, well, you know, I, I can sit with someone for 15 minutes and just know. And uh, there's, you know, I think there's some of that. Um, and then there's just a the desperation in the position. And I think teams like Seattle that took as many shots as they did before they landed Russell Wilson proved to other people, like, why stop? We go back to the Ron Wolf advice, pick a quarterback every year. Like why, why take the most premium position and wait till you're desperate, wait till the market's barren, wait till your roster is barren and then go try to find it. Just keep adding to the position in some way every year. And then you have the teams with the quarterbacks that are getting older, the Pittsburghs of the world, you know, well, yeah, let's put it in behind Ben. Why not? Like let's prepare ourselves for the next evolution. And so I just, I don't see how teams talk themselves out of taking shots when there's so many people that are showing some NFL skills and yeah, is it a done deal? No, but to find a guy with NFL skills itself uh, is usually a thin market. Now, if you could generalize uh, in terms of positions, if you're scouting this class, which position do you think, or if there is one is affected most by not having that, what by some teams, if they don't have that kind of complete picture of that class or that person, is it quarterback or is it a different position? I think the ones where mental acuity is just a little higher of a level, and this isn't to say other positions don't have to read or process things, but when you talk about things and in, in, uh, it's like baseball, like right down the middle of the field, quarterback, center, middle linebacker, safety, these are heavy processing, heavy communication. There's just more options. There's more bodies. There's faster things moving. Um, so like the old adage, like I want to move a tackle inside happens faster inside. We don't have a rusher five yards away. We got a nose tackle on us right now. Hands are faster. Processing is faster. People can come from different levels. Linebackers are covering all the, you know, the run gaps, the pass coverage, different body types, you know, anyway. So right down the middle, I think all of those positions, because when you go watch the film, the chances that you're going to get every answer on how a person thinks, I don't believe in. I think you can get hypothesis. I watch the film. I have a theory about how they think. I have a theory about how they process. I need to go verify. I need to go vet that. And so, again, your ability to source accurate information to vet how a person thinks is going to be critical. It's fascinating to see, I think, how teams are starting to fill the data void a little bit. You know, you get the pro days, you get all that kind of stuff. But the GPS data seems to just kind of get catalyzed more and more with this kind of stuff. You see colleges putting that out and saying, look, you're not going to get your hands on this kid. But look, this is what we tracked throughout the year, how do you think we're going to change or the teams are going to change in terms of scouting? What are the permanent changes going to be coming out of this pandemic? You think? Uh, I think scouting calendar changes are, are certainly possible. I think we we've been forced to adjust in so many different ways to when and how you gather information. Uh, I think some teams are just going to steer into the curve with that and not let's put it this way. The scouting calendar up until the pandemic was still built 
around when you had to carry your projector into the college to get access to borrow their film on a 35 millimeter <laughs> reel. And they, there was literally no other way to get it than to carry a projector in, borrow the film for a while and watch it. <laughs> and we, we never left that calendar. You know, we went as if we had to go, well, the film's digital. We get the film very, very quickly. You can process years of their film before you ever have to go to the campus. So I think smart teams will adjust schedule to a point. Obviously, there's some things built in you can't move around. But generally speaking, I think some scheduling things are there. And then as you brought up, now, while there are the physical trackers, so the NFL have the RFID chips and the pad, the ball, the stadiums, what have you. The colleges that do use a GPS monitoring system, obviously trying to get a hold of that data. Where that all kind of washes out is computer vision. And what I've been exposed to with those technologies, um, the accuracy rates are increasing. They're doing a much better job of tracking that. So you can get how fast players move on film impacts. I'm optimistic that in very short order, there would be no need for a pro day other than to see actual drill work of them doing things, you'll have no questions about how a player moves. Um, in relation, relation to stimuli, like you could take every receiver in the country and measure how fast they run a 12-yard route. Hey, they run the, you know, the um, basic this fast. They run a, a curl this fast. And literally stack them side by side and stack it over time because the computer vision can watch them go from point A to point B in pads in a game scenario and then be able to say like okay well how'd they do that against when a defender was impressed how'd they do that against outside leverage how and really actually see did any of these things modify track them over a season did they get better track them over multiple seasons how, how have they developed like all of this stuff is available in short order it needs to come a little ways but it's really really close uh so i i really don't know if we're going to need to have some of the things I, they'll happen because people are going to not want to let go of it. Yep. Um, but the need for it, I think, is drastically going to diminish. I would want to get your thoughts. Vikings fans here, obviously, listening to this podcast, they really want to know another year where the team needs offensive linemen. We've been told by many people that this is a great class for offensive linemen. Uh, is it as good as people say? And then what are your thoughts just in general? I think it's a good class because of the volume. Um, which is nice, which means that you have a better chance to you can get your hands on two players um, in the class. And then, you know, there's players that seemingly have tackle guard flexibility, you know, and it's you're not necessarily beholden to one, um, which is nice because, again, then you can move things around. So when you have the Ezra Cleveland's of the world, you know, and if you add another player, you can really just figure out who's better in what spot and, you know, maybe not be beholden uh, to mapping that out before the draft where you would have had to in, in prior classes. So, you know, uh, there were classes that tackled in the last few years, or let's say three, four years ago, I can remember one that there was really only three viable starters, you know, in the whole class and everything else was, you know, kind of a hopeful upside, you know, in this class, you're looking at maybe six, seven, eight different starters and then hopeful upside. That's a drastic change. Now, does it make every one of them Walter Jones? No, I'm not going there, but it means you can get those red players out of this class and then to build an offensive line of the theory that you need three to five guys to be good. It doesn't necessarily matter which positions. Um, I think you can get by doing it in different ways, but if you can get three to five of them to be good players, you can kind of work the rest of it around. What gets hard is to have like one elite and four. Eh, that's a, it's a hard mix. 
Yeah, I think Vikings fans will take three out of five at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I think they will. Well, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to join. I really appreciate it. I know our, our listeners are going to appreciate the insight. Oh, happy to. And I'm joined now by Mike Band, NFL Next Gen Stats Analyst, formerly worked in the Vikings Scouting Department and with the Florida Gators recruiting back in the day. Now he's kind of delved into and kind of made his own path um, with analyzing the data, breaking it down, and trying to tell you specifically, too, with the mock drafts, what might happen. Um, but he's doing a lot of work at NFL Network and Media, and you guys should check it all out at NFL.com. What helped you guys fill all that in in lieu of, for instance, the combine? Because you were telling me before we started this that you guys tried to put together, use a model to kind of put together your own combine and figure out who are the athletic stars in lieu of having those 330 guys in Indianapolis. A big issue with not having a official combine uh, results document shared to everybody, right? Uh, there's no official 40-yard dash for any one player. We do have the luxury this year, and, and it's credit to you know the organizers of football ops for being able to put on a pro day for every player and every team uh, across the country. So we were able to collect the athletic drills or athleticism drills that make up uh, the athletic component of our draft model, um, whether that's the typical 40-yard dash, whether it's a 10-yard split, whether it's the vertical jump and broad jump, whether or not that how, how valid the data is in terms of the same field type, whether it's you know uh, running into the wind, running with the wind, those are some of the characteristics and some of the pieces of the data that are a challenge for us this season. Um, but What's fun about being on the statistics side of the NFL draft is you get to learn about these new ways of creating and filling in missing pieces of the data uh, picture. So there's an, a statistical technique called imputation. So let's say a player only jump, uh, just participates in the vertical jump and the broad jump and three count, for example. Well, we can use those measures along with their size attributes, take all the historical players relative to that same player's position and estimate what those other drill results would be. Hmm. And it takes a naive approach. It's not going to say, oh, it's an uh, elite elite and then he's the best player ever. It's going to understand the average cornerback or the average defensive end. But really, this technique helps us, helps us deal with this missing data problem that we can extrapolate what a player's athleticism is and also understand that there are data holes and data just uh, uh, missing data pieces of, of the picture. Yeah, and you had mentioned before, too, that the RFID data, for people who don't know, that there's chips and all these uh, shoulder pads now and, and jerseys that are going on these players to help track them. Colleges are putting out hey, here's how fast our kids are running in, in lieu of maybe having that combine or that official 40 time. Um, how is all that data? How far has that come since you started kind of using it? I think you mentioned 2015 was when it kind of started. And the Vikings were, uh, you were involved with the Vikings too in trying to build some of these models. How far has all this information come in 2021? It's been quite a journey. Uh, and to say that it's only been six, seven years since we even first introduced the concept of the predictive model applied to the draft. Uh, it's, it, it, it's amazing how fast it's gone by. Um, but it's also incredible to see how far the whole uh, adaption of 
the number side of this process has become and how prevalent it's become and how, you know, it used to be trying to, um, you know, you're knocking on coaches' doors, trying to get them to look at something that you try to, you know, boil down to the key takeaways. And, and now it's, it's a, an absolute part of the whole process. Um, you're absolutely right when you say that there is a new frontier coming uh, when you start to connect the next-gen stats uh, RFID chips that we have in pro players, uh, the colleges are doing the same with, with different technologies. Uh, it's up to the college to share the data with these NFL teams, and, and certain teams are, especially their agents. And that's certainly another piece of the puzzle uh, that teams now have uh, to gauge and to build a model around. Um, you know, it's always been the, the saying of, I don't want to know 40-yard dash, I want to know game speed. Well, I, I think we're pretty close to that. Yeah, you can actually look that and see that now. Um, when you were working with the Vikings, how how much of it in its infancy was it? So I was there uh, between 2013 and 2015 seasons. Uh, so it was the 2014 and 2015 draft. Mm. And originally, you know, a lot of the analytics-based studies back then were Microsoft Excel driven. Uh, there were certain teams that were probably using uh, programs either built by the in-house engineering staff or, uh, you know, SPSS or Stata or, you know, these, these very rudimentary or not rudimentary, but old school, you could say, sure. uh, in terms of programming lang languages to do statistical analysis. Now it's every analytics staffer in an NFL building needs to know how to code. Um, they're much more ingrained in the football information uh, technology side of things. So they're constantly looking to uh, create pipelines between the data and the audience, the decision makers. And a lot of that, the pipelines are predictive models and, and, and uh, different ways to uh, support the NFL draft process, whether it's predicting who's going to be the best player or doing a study on which positions uh, uh, you should draft in different areas of the draft based off of whether it's value, whether it's, you know, strengths and weaknesses. Um, there's a lot more to the analytics process of the NFL draft than people probably think. Are you seeing them, I guess, from a Viking standpoint, just I'm, I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on how you've seen them stand out or are they kind of with the pack? So what makes the Vikings room special as it pertains to the draft is they understand the number one principle of the draft. And that is draft picks matter. The more you have, the more at-bats you get at the plate. It comes down to a maximizing and optimizing uh, your seven picks you're giving every year to then end up with 10 or 11 picks. And if you mirror that methodology or that theory with at least some level of analytical uh, approval or support where you're, where you're avoiding players that test below certain levels. It's not about necessarily picking players with traits that meet every single elite threshold. You just want to have a player that meets all of the good enough thresholds. Um, and so using the same mindset of mind sweeper uh if rick is up you know if, if, if he's up in a few picks and and there's a 
you know, three or four guys on the board that he likes, he's going to trade down because there's a very good like there's a very good chance that one of those three or four players is still going to be on the board when he comes around and picks again. So with that, so you're putting all the analytics together to understand that you take premium positions at the top of the draft and be able to get certain depth positions later on in the draft. All of those are the different pieces that have analytical influence, but don't necessarily need to be this, hey, these are the results of the model. This is who you should draft. Well, let me ask you now about one more thing regarding that in terms of what you guys have been doing into, into 2021 and what could maybe be in the future. Maybe we won't need these kind of extra testings if we just have every piece of information from their playing speed, how they did things on the field, how they changed direction on the field, all those things. Um, if, if you're imagining the future and just kind of guessing how it could be, do you, do you think that could ever get to that point where, where the coaches don't necessarily need to go to every pro day? And- you know, I think the teams love the pro day process and it is to get their hands on the guy. It's, it's not as much the drills as much as it is getting to know them as a person. Um, you know, you, you hear uh, GMs across sports say that they know that they have a bust after they drafted them a week after, you know, having the guy in the building for a week. There's a level of, of uh, getting to of the off the field stuff that numbers will never be able to replace. And I'm always a fan of that side of the scouting process. Um, the pro days too. Now, whether or not the measure the measurements and the drills that they do at the pro days and at the combine, there probably is a future where they're enhanced to be more position specific. Mm. When there's an understanding of uh, you know, three cone drills and short shuttles might be for might be for front seven guys, right? And, and you start to learn a lot about uh, their quickness, and maybe there's new ideas about okay, well this this drill would measure this athletic quality. Problem is, if we as a league go down that route, we're now we now don't have a historical data set to compare all this all this stuff to. So I don't think we'll ever lose the 40-yard dash because of what you're doing of comparing apples to apples to apples to apples. And I'm referencing the midweek workouts of practice squad guys when you're trying to bring players in to know if you need bodies for that upcoming Sunday. They're running the 40 to know how fast they are. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we're going to see a world where those drills are necessarily replaced uh, quickly but we could see it phased out with newer drills and more uh, league-wide shared data uh, that could be collected elsewhere. And no more offensive linemen running the 40, maybe? <laughs> maybe just the 10-yard split? Who knows? <laughs> for the sake of, uh, for the sake of, of you know, the, the evaluation, it's probably better if we didn't have 40-yard data. <laughs> no, but, um, but, but, but I do want to bring up one last thing about the mm-hmm. future, and, and that is, you know, technology is a big thing that's moving faster than anybody can really see coming. And you've heard stories about how uh, people are building or companies are building uh, the ability to see how fast someone is just with videotape. And so there could be a world where you're mixing chips or GPS or video all together to sort of get a bigger uh, and more robust data set. 
conceivably it's very it's possible it's uh, a form of deep learning so it is in the the umbrella of, of machine learning and ai um, it is being applied in a variety of different industries and whether or not you know there's a lot of uh, manual processes that it would take to even get to a place where that's sustainable across every prospect across every college yeah, that's a good point. Well, Mike, let's talk about everybody's favorite, which is mock drafts. I mean, everybody loves to kind of consume hundreds, if not thousands of them every draft season. You got into this industry because you were so good at it. Um, why, what is explaining your fascination with them? And just talk about your process. You're, you're about to publish yours this week. It's exciting times. Uh, you know, mock draft season is at full force. It is what I like to think of as one of the most fascinating thought exercises you could do as an analyst of, of, of the game or of the league, and that is to put yourself in the minds of what these decision makers are thinking about and going through the necessary pieces of information that would drive those decisions. So back when I originally started in the mid-2000s, mock drafts were you know, trying to take a few insiders, you could call them, and, and taking those uh, truly had to take them at face value when smoke really was smoke back then, mm. and, and really get to understand who these teams are going after and that sort of thing. Uh, the internet was, was, did not have the type of information that you have now, whether it's searching keywords in Twitter and uh, across Google News, there are signs and connections that you can make between decision maker, the team, the player, the positions they're targeting, their historical draft philosophies, all of these little bits and pieces of information make up what goes into the final or what you could call the final mock draft of the year. Um, and, and it's a fun process. Well, this year, what's it been like for you? As Because you had mentioned before we started that the trades specifically, with how many teams, it seems every year we're getting more teams with I think we've heard GMs talk about just the advent of mobile phones and these smartphones, just trades can go down much quicker than they could 10 years ago. And now we're seeing it kind of seemingly tick up every year. Are you anticipating even more of that this year as, as certainly the chatter would indicate? I do. And what makes trade in the NFL draft another fascinating feature is that there are non-zero sum trades that can be organized. If I'm at a pick, say I'm at the 14th pick and there's not a player available that I'm interested in taking and I move down to the 18th pick, the team picking 18 might be able to give me assets to move up and I win because I would have taken the same player 14 that I would have taken at 18 or that I end up getting at 18. And that's just the rudimentary thought of, a, of, a, of how there can be a both sides win a trade. And I think teams are becoming much more comfortable with that area of moving around um, because it is an information gathering world now where you know what your opponent's doing some, some of these times in some of these, in some of these situations. And so, you know, you start to see how you, you see how the 49ers trade up for the third pick a month in advance of, of the draft. That to me tells me that they know who they're going to take, regardless of what Kyle Shanahan says in his pressers. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that you know who won, who's going one, you know who's going two, you know who's going three. So now the next uh, you know, pick is, is Atlanta. Okay, do they take the tight end or the quarterback? 
and all of these little dominoes that start to get more and more clear leading up to the night of the draft sort of start to make the, uh, the, the picture of the whole draft and the way to go more crystallized. You start to see, okay, the Giants are either looking at Devontae Smith or Parsons or maybe even sneaking an offensive tackle there at 11. You start to see, okay, the Eagles are probably going corner or receiver there at, at 12, but don't be surprised if Howie trades down. You know, you start to see these nonlinear pieces, and then you start to put them together in a linear fashion, and then you could start to see how the board would fall that would have a team move up to a certain spot. So right after those top five picks, you can see Denver moving up to six with uh, the relationship between uh, Greer and Peyton. You could see uh, the Patriots moving up from 15 to not up to seven uh, for a quarter. But, you know, all these little connections, that's the web and, and really what drives the whole picture. Yeah, and with that said, you bring up um, wanting to put it in a linear kind of fashion, which is what one through 32 is, obviously, for a mock draft. How hard is that when you've got these five quarterbacks people presume to go in the first round and, and probably inherently co- causing more of those trade up, trade-ups and kind of scenarios? Analytically speaking, the only position that is worthy of a trade-up in the top 10 picks is a quarterback. So you have full, hey, if the team – like that flavor, go get your guy. That's sort of the idea and the mindset because it is a very scheme-driven uh, game. You could one one quarterback could fit in this scheme and another in this scheme, right? What is it? What makes the most sense as uh, as far as backups? Does it make sense for uh, Mac Jones to back up Cam Newton, or does it make more sense for Dustin Fields or Trey Lance to back up Cam Newton? There's a lot of there's a, an understanding how the fit and how the pieces would work, offensive coordinators are not building two systems uh, for two different guys. So putting the pieces together of what the type of offenses these teams are trying to run, um, it will give you a little bit of an inside look about where they all could end up. Do the opt-outs or any of these other things, when we're just talking about your mock draft for roster watch, do any of the other elements of this year, this pandemic year, whether it's the opt-outs or the kids at the FCS level, like Dylan Ray Dunes, the tackle out of NDSU, any other things that kind of just make it harder to predict in terms of how a team might feel about a kid? To me, it's going to point to a, a top heavy draft that leads to teams not necessarily placing a premium on the second and third round because you don't have that information on these guys. You don't have the, what, what's really going to be a, a big question mark is, is how these medical flags fall, right? So these players who have only been in, in the, don't get to be looked at by certain team doctors at certain points, how much can you trust that process of it? And that becomes a, a much bigger issue inside those war rooms then uh, then the public gets credit. Mike, well, everybody can go check out your mock draft when it's posted at Roster Watch. Um, Please go check out all of his work at um, NFL.com where all the next-gen stat stuff is being done as well. Um, He's going to have, and and their team is going to have, the day three uh, gems coming out soon as well. You'll be able to see kind of who analytically stands out and maybe some names that are going to be read early on day three. Uh, Mike, is there anything else you wanted to add about um, just kind of this weird year and, and the draft process? You know, it's uh, it, it's been fun being a part of this next gen stats team uh, and watching uh, really the the brand and the adoption of 
of player tracking data and, and the derivatives from it grow so tremendously over these last few years. Uh, you know, it, it, it's been, I'm grateful to be able to, as part of an analytics team, still work, you know, with the NFL draft and, you know, be part of the, uh, the media prognostication, um, giving our analytics two cents on what might happen. Um, but yeah, you know, as far as this player tracking data and, and its applications across, uh, you know, across the league, it, it's, it, it's an exciting time to be, uh, to be in this wave of analytics and football. Uh, thanks so much, Mike, for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Maybe you should get off the podcast. <laughs>